From KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. We're winding down our 18th year on the air and still the only program on radio dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought. So let me welcome you to the crossroads of history. Our topic today is almost as old as civilization itself and recently been cast into national headline news with the sorrowful event in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Anti-Semitism has had many negative iterations. It happens to Jews, well, maybe we're not so upset about it. But this business about ascendancy, as I said, of this neo-Nazi white nationalism really to be tolerated in the high, at the highest levels of government is inexcusable. It doesn't mean that it couldn't happen again. It can happen again, and it can happen here. Anti-Semitism is our topic, and we'll be right here after the news, so stay with us. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow here on KUAR. Our topic today is anti-Semitism. And before I introduce my guests, I need to explain a technicality about this particular regular airing time. All of my guests today are Jews, and we are recording on Thursday of last week. And one of the Jewish practices is to refrain from activities like this on Shabbat which is Friday evening to Saturday night. For our practicing Jews in our audience, this program will also be aired Sunday at 9. And for all others, I hope you gain a stronger insight from this discussion into just what anti-Semitism was, is now, and might be in the future generations. My guests are Phil Kaplan from the older generation. He's had a long involvement and crucial role in KUAR, KLRE, public radio over the many years. Our regular listeners have heard him over the years along with Leslie Singer as the two Jewish guys. He also is a distinguished lawyer in Little Rock with a long history of service to the Jewish community as well as involvement in civil rights issues. He's one of the most respected attorneys and humanitarians in our area. Phil, glad to have you with us here. Pleasure to be here. And also glad to have you back on the air here at KUAR. My pleasure. Speaking from the middle generation perspective is Rabbi Barry Block of the congregation B'nai Israel. He assumed the pulpit in Little Rock in 2013. He was ordained in 1991 at the New York campus of Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion and having been awarded the degree Masters of Art in Hebrew Letters at the Los Angeles campus in 1988. And Rabbi Block has served Reform Judaism nationally and regionally as a a member of the board of the Central Conference of American Rabbis and chair of its resolutions and nominating committees, and as president of the Southwest Association of Reform Rabbis. Rabbi Block, glad to have you here, too. Thank you. And then speaking from that younger generation is Hannah Lieberman. She's a senior at Hendricks College studying biology and environmental studies, and she is the president of the Jewish student organization on campus called Hillel. She grew up going to a Jewish day school in Texas. So, Hannah, glad you can be here, too. Thanks. As I mentioned, uh, we're recording on Thursday prior to our airing, and on Wednesday, yesterday, there was an event in New York of anti-Semitism involving uh, Professor Elizabeth Medlarski in New York, where her office was vandalized with spray paint, or this was the second time, the last time it happened in 2007, and she's blaming the rise of anti-Semitism for this particular incident, and she made a comment in her news story today that she now has terrible fear of this being something that she might have to experience 
conditions in an ongoing way. Very, very sad thing to hear about, even as we led up to this recording today. But I do want to begin with you, Phil Kaplan, in the older generation perspective. I'm thinking about all the history that we have learned over time about uh, the Jewish life and the anti-Semitism that has been experienced. But as you look back over even your life and your parents' life or, or the history there, where do we begin to think about anti-Semitism in society? Where has it fit into your lives? Well, in my life, I was born in 1938, so I am uh, familiar with and grew up with uh, what went on in the 30s in this country. Uh, there was Father Coughlin, and there was Henry Ford, and uh, there was Gerald L. K. Smith, and there was a, a host of other individuals who promoted virulent anti-Semitism. Uh, Henry Ford uh, published the uh, Protocol of the Elders of Zion, a notorious fabrication uh, which originated in Russia in his uh, newspaper in Dearborn. Uh, it was promoted also by Father Coughlin on his radio program. Uh, there was uh, rather widespread uh, anti-Semitism in the 30s, which continued into the 40s. When I was growing up, uh, I didn't know any Jewish person who would buy a Ford automobile because of uh, Henry Ford. And in those days, there weren't, Jews did not, were not offered employment in banks, in law firms that were not uh, Jewish in um, a host of other occupations that were excluded for Jews. You know, it was my son, for example, now works in a bank, a rather large bank in Kansas City. That would have been unheard of when I was growing up. It just was something that uh, we all understood. We all remember the, the film Gentleman's Agreement with Gregory Peck when, uh, as a reporter, uh, he tried to publicized uh, through a story. Uh, he attempted to get uh, accommodation in several hotels and uh, other places, and he was excluded instantly once uh, he, although he was not Jewish, once uh, he made it known that he was Jewish. So something I was familiar with growing up and still familiar with. All the way through your uh, high school education, did you have very many Jewish friends in school with you? Well, as it turns out, my best friends were not Jewish, although I had many Jewish friends because I, I went to Hebrew school, so uh, I was, and I was part of an immigrant community. When I was growing up, we lived in an area where there were uh, lots of immigrants, and not only Jewish immigrants, but Greeks and uh, Polish people and uh, Italians. But then we moved, when I was in the sixth grade, we moved to an area that was, could hardly be described as a, an immigrant neighborhood. And our next door neighbor made some rather incendiary remarks. He grew to, I think, tolerate us after a while, but it was not pleasant at first. I didn't really experience direct hostility myself growing up. I got into a couple of fights, um, I think, with kids because I was Jewish. You know, it was sort of a thing you expected. How did your peers who were not Jewish, how did they know to pick on you? <laughs> well, there was never any secret as to who I was. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Even in your young years, did people know the Jews in the community? Did I think so. 
most Jews shopped in a particular area in, in stores that catered to the Jewish market. There were Jewish bakeries. There were Jewish butcher shops. There were Jewish groceries. People knew uh, who was Jewish and who was not. And also going back even further into the history of things, after World War II, or let's say before World War II, was the word anti-Semitism something that people talked about then? Well, I can't say, of course, because uh, I grew up uh, during the war, so I can't really say what might have been spoken about before. My parents were immigrants. Uh, they came here from Eastern Europe, and their lives were mostly among people like them. Did they experience um, hostility? I don't know. They didn't really talk about hostility in this country. They certainly spoke about hostility sure. in Europe. What was your response to anti-Semitism as a, as a younger person growing up in your time? Were you taught certain ways to respond to anti-Semitism that might be different than what we hear now? What recollection I have, and I'm 80 years old now, I haven't got a vivid recollection <laughs> of those <laughs> years. I don't think that I ever let a remark pass without responding. Responding. I don't think that I ever deliberately tried to uh, encounter or to uh, provoke any kind of hostility, but I just knew the way a young black person knows that they just have to be better than everybody else. So you just, you just did your best and you tried to, in school, you tried to be the best you could and, and work the hardest. I just worked harder and succeed in that way. Let's move up to uh, Rabbi Barry Block. As you look at your younger years, or even as you look at the, your age group now, where has anti-Semitism fit into your lives? If we're talking about my younger years, I, I grew up in Houston. I heard about anti-Semitism a fairly great deal as an historical matter. I was born in 1963, so when you're a kid, even something that happened two years before you were born is ancient history. My father had graduated number one University of Texas Law School in 1961, and he was not offered an interview at any major law firm in downtown Houston or Dallas. Um, he went to work for a firm that was mostly Jewish attorneys, and he didn't suffer as a result of that, but I was raised knowing that story of anti-Semitic exclusion. Anti-Semitism in my childhood and as reported really by my parents, was more of being excluded from certain neighborhoods, certain clubs, certain associations. Already by the time I was old enough to be aware, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had been adopted. And there's a great deal of historical work that indicates that while progress for African Americans who were the the subject of most of the activism leading up to the adoption of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. While progress for that group was slow, progress for Jews in the wake of the adoption of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was swift. And so my father, when he was telling me, let's even say as an eight-year-old in 1971, about his not being offered in any interviews when he graduated number one from University of Texas Law School, that seemed like ancient history because Jews now were in the law firms um, to which he'd been denied even an interview. And so many of the places of exclusion that I heard about had already changed. I went to a private school 
that was an independent school, but it was loosely affiliated with an Episcopal church. We had chapel every Wednesday. And one of my very first memories in, is in kindergarten, getting an instruction, going in with the whole class, instruction on how to behave in chapel, and being told when, when the person leading says, let us pray, everybody kneels except the Jews may stay seated. Um, by the way, I don't recall resenting that. I recall being <laughs> grateful that I didn't have to kneel, which wasn't part of my religion. And furthermore, wouldn't have been anything unusual for me to be known as a Jew. Um, I went to that school and for 13 years, from kindergarten through 12th grade, though my closest friends always were the children of my parents' friends and the grandchildren of my grandparents' friends and um, were Jewish and people that I went to temple with. So my identity was always known. A examples of my facing anti-Semitism personally as a child are so rare that I can recall the time in third grade when a kid said to me, you're Jewish? Ooh. That was the extent of it, and yet I still remember it because it was so out of the ordinary of my experience. Phil Kaplan, does out of the ordinary sound like what you would have experienced in those same t type of years? You know, I, I think that I was uh, fairly insulated. My closest friends from at least the sixth grade through high school were not Jewish. I had that insulating factor around me. We were always together. I don't think that someone who might have had some hostility would be provoked because of my association with other non-Jewish friends. We'll continue our generational discussion on anti-Semitism right after this break. We're back. I'm Phil Marriage, and if you're just joining us, our generational discussion this evening is on anti-Semitism with my guest, Phil Kaplan, a longtime friend of KUARKLRE and headliner along with Leslie Singer of the long-running show, The Two Jewish Guys, here on KUAR. He's also a very distinguished lawyer here in Little Rock with a long history of service to the Jewish community as well as involvement in civil rights issues. Also, Hannah Lieberman, she's a senior at Hendricks College studying biology and environmental studies, and she's the president of the Jewish student organization on campus called Hillel. And then also Rabbi Barry Block of Congregation B'nai Israel. Rabbi Block has served Reform Judaism nationally and regionally as a member of the board of the Central Conference of American Rabbis and chair of its resolutions and nominating committee. So getting back to our discussion, Rabbi Block, did you recognize others who were facing more than you did? Again, most of the of the anti-Semitism that I heard about that was people facing much more than I did was either historical, looking back from the perspective I have now, the Holocaust wasn't very long over by the time I was growing right. up. But at the time, it seemed like a long time ago to a child. Also, when I was growing up, we were acutely aware of anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union. There was a lot of activism to combat anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union in the 1970s in particular, and I was involved in that activism. I was very aware of anti-Semitism, but it wasn't really to people around me. It was either historical or far away. Well, Hannah Lieberman, let me bring you in uh, from our younger perspective. From what you've heard from these two, does it sound like what anything your peers have experienced? I grew up in a, in a rhetoric of a very frequent and extreme anti-Semitism of the older generations in my family. Um, I was privileged to never have experienced direct anti-Semitism within my lifetime, but 
carried the anecdotes that were often exchanged at family gatherings about what my grandparents had experienced growing up, what my parents had experienced growing up in small towns in South Texas where they were often the only Jewish person representing the religion in their in their schools or in their homerooms. My mother in the first grade in the mid-70s was asked by a friend of hers where her horns were on the school bus. My grandfather, her father, also in McAllen, Texas, what took up boxing as a form of self-defense because he was beaten every day on his way home from school by other kids, and that became a big passion and hobby of his, but stemmed out of a really horrific place of, of physically needing to defend himself for being picked on for being Jewish. And my other grandfather on my paternal side was a Holocaust survivor, so I definitely carried those stories close. And even though I had never experienced anything to feel fear personally, it was kept very close in the back of my mind, especially when I traveled outside of my comfort zones, outside of my communities, that just because it hadn't happened yet doesn't mean that it couldn't. I was put in Jewish day school all through high school, and so I was definitely sheltered and in a very inclusive and homogeneous environment, which was a choice my parents made to shelter me from those kinds of realities. And in college, comparing notes about anti-Semitic treatment with friends who, who were not as enclosed in the Jewish bubble as I was, they definitely encountered a lot of exclusion and, and ignorant comments from their schoolmates. Even though I would hear those stories and say, well, that could never really happen to me, I definitely reflect on my upbringing as lucky and, and very protected to have been in those sheltered and inclusive environments. Do you experience anti-Semitism or your peers experience it differently now that you're out of the bubble? Right. Even though I'm out of the, the Jewish bubble, I'm in another bubble of, of its own in a very um, open, inclusive liberal arts school in a small town. Moving to Arkansas was definitely a change for me, but I still think that my Jewishness is met with a lot of politeness and curiosity and, and sincere interest from a lot of my peers, especially of different faith backgrounds. And I definitely wear my Jewishness genetically and, and in my jewelry and in my vocabulary and something that's very overt that I typically do not feel unsafe with. But as I hear it climbing in the news, it is very scary. The things that I remember hearing about my parents and grandparents that didn't seem possible of happening to me feel less that way nowadays. One thing I find interesting and experienced very acutely was recently with the shootings in Pittsburgh, noticing that a lot of my peers didn't know how to talk to me about it. I was not as reached out to as I perhaps expected to be. Were um, you avoided? I'm, I was not avoided, but the subject was definitely avoided. And the whole ordeal was a very painful but important lesson in how I can be a better community member and friend to different minority groups when, when they're when their race or religion is being targeted. Even if it doesn't happen to you, you feel affected. You feel more at risk as a response. And solidarity is so important at those times. And that was sort of the first time I felt pretty in the cold by people I knew personally, just because people didn't want to talk about it. And I know that's not out of insensitivity, but, but perhaps intimidation about how to, how to open that subject. But there were certain friends of mine 
who were not Jewish who texted me when they heard the news and said, thinking of you and your family, sending love, this is terrible. Mm. And, you know, something simple as that went such a long way. It was hurtful to me that, like, my campus was not talking about it. And I had to kind of reach out to the interfaith community and say, hey, this needs to be acknowledged on campus. We need to do something about it. And that silence was was concerning. To all three of you, but let me direct it back to Phil Kaplan first. The events that have happened, let's say recently, and I don't know how to define recent because it seems like it has been a crescendo of events that have happened. Anti-Semitism changed in the current times and how? Well, I think that um, we see this white nationalism on the ascendancy, and it seems to have an acceptance among a larger portion of the population. And I think that that's because leaders do not speak aggressively and affirmatively in response and against that. If you allow cancer to grow without doing anything to stop it, to say, look, this has to be dealt with. I mean, as Hannah said, this wasn't a a cancer, but she wanted her peer group, her contemporaries, her college, to acknowledge that this was a a terrible, terrible thing. I mean, it was the largest slaughter of Jews in the United States Mm -hmm. ever. And not to be acknowledged is to say, well, you know, if, if it had happened in a black community, we would have been terribly upset about it. it. It happens to Jews, well, maybe we're not so upset about it. But this business about ascendancy, as I said, of this neo-Nazi white nationalism, really to be tolerated in the high, at the highest levels of government is inexcusable. I noted that she said, it doesn't mean that it couldn't happen again. It can happen again, and it can happen here. Mm-hmm. So ADL documents incidents of anti-Semitism, and there has been a dramatic rise in the last two years in anti-Semitic incidents. Current anti-Semitism is coming in different ways from two different places. One that Phil spoke about, which is the rise of white nationalism. There is a worldwide rise of white nationalism. Then we had a presidential candidate who tapped into it and who, when Jewish people were slaughtered in Pittsburgh, went directly to saying that they should have had armed guards to protect them, that it was more or less their fault. That wasn't his word. He didn't say it was their fault, but he, he, what he went straight to was that they should have had guns. Time and again, there have been demonstrations of violent and threatening white nationalism in this country, most notably at Charlottesville, when our national leader did not unequivocally speak out in opposition. So we have a problem in this country, although it's also a worldwide problem of of a rise of white nationalism. There is also a rise in anti-Semitism from the extremist left, um, which would include the extremist Islamist, which I don't know if we really call that left, but in any event, an extremist anti-Zionism that becomes so virulent as that Jews are pigs at 
anti-Israel rallies. And so it becomes very anti-Semitic. What we see becoming murderous is from the right, is the white nationalism aspect. But but both are dangerous and, and both are very problematic and both are significant in ways that absolutely were not at the time that I was growing up or that I was in college. And, and for example, we read a great deal today, and I, Hannah could tell us better than anybody but, um, what the situation is like on campus, and Hendricks may be, an, may be a, an exception, but on a number of college campuses, particularly large ones, there is a lot of anti-Israel activism that turns anti-Semitic. And Jews can be excluded from, from student government positions because they oppose uh, boycotting Israel, for example. Or it's assumed that they will be Israel supporters because they're Jewish. In Columbia. Um, it's happened at a lot of places. It's happened at mm-hmm. University of California campuses. Obviously, that's different from murder. But the, these kinds of things, I, I went to uh, college on a very liberal campus and, and experienced nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Did I have a civil debate about Israel on the, with somebody to my left? Yeah, when even that surprised me. But nobody trying to, to shut down my freedom of speech or, or in any way going anti-Semitic in that way in those days. Well, Hannah, you brought it up and you mentioned about the fears that you might experience because people are ignoring dealing with anti-Semitism and the fact that you didn't know if it would come up again like it did historically, if it could happen again. Are the younger people really aware of their responsibilities or their opportunities to get something done this time so that it doesn't happen again? Because it does sound scary. I think Holocaust education in the States, and maybe this is in uh, a naive perception, but I think I think it's very strong in schools. People who I've compared notes with in different states and different school districts all say that it's it's very much driven home. I think we have great museums and, and conferences, but I don't know. I think I think it's very easy to slip into apathy. I definitely grew up in a narrative of never get too comfortable in America, um, and that came from my, my grandfather, who'd, who'd come here from Poland, um, but also from, you know, next to every educator in my, in my um, Jewish schools, which was a don't unpack your bags all the way. You know, it, it, it happened there. It could happen here. That may sound absolutely insane, but they said, you know what, Germany was modern. Germany was progressive. No one thought it could happen there. Don't think that, that um, the States is above it. That is a very scary thing to share with children. That education for me started at age six. I, that, that was very, very heavy growing up. And I don't think I necessarily believed that, but it's, it's scary to see what's happening today. And it's important definitely to recognize that it's not anti-Semitism in a vacuum that's on the rise. It's, it's hate speech. It's targeting of lots of different minority groups, and that is a climate that's being encouraged by our president, that, that it's, it's all right to be a white supremacist. It's all right to speak on a public platform being overtly xenophobic, overtly anti-immigrant. There's, there's a lot of minorities that are at risk that are important to recognize as part of this trend. 
And while it's definitely important to look at it for its individual parts, looking at that that spreadsheet of everybody at risk is very, very important. I think CNN just came out with a spread of censuses on different different perceptions in different countries in Europe about anti-Semitism. And that's that's in Europe, and there's been a lot of interesting comments to the report about, hmm, wonder what this would be like here in the States, maybe not so different. I thought it was very important that at the end of the article they said, and while 10% of folks in the survey were comfortable with being overtly anti-Semitic, it was, you know, 16% were, were comfortable with being anti-LGBTQ+. And higher than that were willing to say that they were proudly anti-immigrant. And many more than that were, in their percentages, were proud to say that they, were, that they hated Muslim people. That they, and so it's, it's definitely important to consider those percentages and proportions. CNN recently released a sweeping survey of European attitudes and found uh-huh. a quarter of Europeans are anti-Semitic. A quarter, thirty-four percent, have n- no knowledge of uh, the Holocaust. Um, large no, numbers. No, no knowledge. Isn't that None. shocking? In yeah. Europe. In, in Europe. Europe. It's very scary. Well, and another thing that's interesting to take into account is that the way that anti-Semitism adapts to be acceptable or mainstream in different generations, and some of it can go undetectable by by sounding kind of pseudo-intellectual, by saying, oh, well, you know, I'm not anti-Semitic, but I definitely think that Jews have too much influence in the media, or I think that Jews have too much influence in banking or in uh, political affairs globally. And it's those kind of conspiracies that are perpetuated from books in the in the 30s and the 40s that have just kind of slipped in and are, are worded differently, but are not different. Classical European anti-Semitism. Phil, Phil alluded to the, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a fabrication in Tsarist Russia, claiming to be a, a, a record, record of um, conversations among wealthy, powerful Jews and their plan for world domination. And this was published as though it was fact, not only in Tsarist Russia, as Phil says, in the United in States the United by States. Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. and I hear the same kinds of things that Hannah talks about hearing. Well, you're talking about what one of my thoughts on the program was the stereotypes that have lasted for generations and eons, and, and you're getting into that. Phil, uh, stereotypes, what do you think? Minority groups are victimized by stereotypical tropes uh, that uh, continue on and have uh, some solid underground foundation that occasionally, uh, unfortunately too often, emerge publicly. In this community, when I came here in 1968, there were the Junior League uh, didn't have Jews, uh, the downtown Little Rock Club didn't have Jews, the country clubs didn't have Jews, but it did change over time. In this community, Jews were members of um, law firms, but we didn't have any huge law firms like they did in other places. But the stereotypes exist now. Jews control the entertainment industry. Uh, Jews control, allegedly, the newspaper and the media of all kinds. I mean, all of it is untrue, and they'll... Those stereotypes about about Jews, about um, 
African Americans? Are we going to be able to get rid of them? Well, I, I don't know that in, in my lifetime it's not going to happen. And it's certainly not going to happen in um, the atmosphere that we have now because no one is speaking loudly, aggressively, affirmatively, constantly to say, we cannot tolerate this. You know, when you say America first, America firsters in the 30s were responsible for association with uh, fascism. I mean, there was just no doubt. That's what America first was. It was um, sort of a, a cloak for fascistic um, ideals and ideas. And to hear it again is just, it's astounding to me that people, that we aren't, that we don't remember what it was to, to have anybody say America first. We have to take one more break, and I hope you're learning from this discussion on anti-Semitism, so stay with us. You're listening to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow here on KUIR. I'm Phil Marriage, along with my guests Phil Kaplan, Hannah Lieberman, and Rabbi Barry Block. Rabbi? Well, America First was, was frightening. It is frightening to me. Not the notion that we, any of us, have to take care of our own families and our own peoples first, but using that terminology that was sympathetic to Hitler, saying that we shouldn't get involved in World War II and and, uh, do anything to interfere with what was happening in Europe. What I would say, and it's interesting because I was reflecting on on Hannah's experience after after the the, uh, mass murder in Pittsburgh. It was a Saturday. It was on, on, on Shabbat. And that Saturday night, I wrote an email to every Christian clergy person in central Arkansas who was in my directory, and, and Muslim, um, not only Christian, to, to invite them and to invite them to invite their churches and, and congregations and mosques to attend a memorial service that we held on the following Monday night. We had the largest gathering, to my knowledge, in the history of Congregation B'nai Israel. We had at least 500, maybe more, in the temple that Monday night. To my way of thinking, was strong standing up against hatred and white supremacy. But yes, we do need it from the top mm-hmm. of our government, for sure. Hannah, uh, in listening to these two, where did the younger generation fall in terms of understanding real history as it affects these different things that become political, become social, become military, scary? History, for, um, I happen to be someone who really enjoys reading history from all different aspects, and I keep worried at from what you guys are talking about, how history may not be important to younger people. Am I wrong? Um, that's not my experience for the most part. My friends are very, very um, invested and, and up-to-date in world affairs. And even if that's not looking back towards history, it is very invested in the modern day. I, I was actually at the memorial service that Rabbi Block was just discussing. It was in, very impressive and very touching. I definitely cried. Um, I think all of the all of the clergy members who'd come in solidarity rose up to the bima or to the front of the the sanctuary at the synagogue, and there were at least a hundred. It was it was very very important. That was such a healing experience, but also a very important reminder that 
not to reduce the alarm of rising anti-Semitism. It's also crucial to recognize that American Jewry have enjoyed a lot of um, privilege and acceptance and religious freedom in the states. That same reaction, um, not to negate the particular experience on my campus, but but the the national reaction to the the events in Pittsburgh are are not the same as they were with the other shootings and hate crimes that had happened that weekend um, in the black community. And whereas the Pittsburgh shooting was immediately recognized as a hate crime, those were not. Those took days to identify that way. And that is a difference, uh, a discrepancy that, that is important to be aware of. As I was preparing for the program, because I'm not a Jew, obviously, and so I don't know a lot of, about that. So I googled anti-Semitism for dummies. And you know what I found was an interesting article there, and it was written by Paul Johnson, um, and he was talking about anti-Semitism for dummies in a different way, that we are stupid as a society, as a humanity, for doing what we've done to good people over historical things. We've driven them out of countries. We've put these stereotypes on them. We've forced them out of business. We've forced their lives. We've killed them. When these people could have helped us develop this, that, and the other. The dummy part was how dumb we are for having done that as a hum human race to one of our particular parts of our society. And I that stuck with me as I come up to this program. What do you think of that, Phil? You know, during uh, the very recent past, the Catholic Church uh, changed its attitude and uh, decided that we weren't Christ killers anymore. And um, the liturgy, and that the liturgy needed to be changed um, so that um, uh, the terrible things that were said about Jews uh, would not continue to be promulgated and absorbed into the culture. Look, as a young person growing up, uh, I, went to, uh, I went to public school, but I didn't, after school went to Hebrew school, so I learned about all of the... Um, um, the, the pogroms, and I learned about how uh, Jews were killed as the Crusaders marched across Europe, um, and how Jews were uh, kicked out of virtually every European country, um, and then, of course, um, uh, in the Inquisition in, in Spain. So, you know, it was, I think, part of most Jews growing up that they learn these things. Um, they learn these things for a number of, of reasons. We are a people who live in history. History is with us um, all the time. Lest we forget what that history has meant and what that history teaches. Uh, so I'm glad that uh, our experience here in this country uh, was different. I did uh, go uh, just this summer. We were in uh, Newport and went to the Turo Synagogue uh, in Newport. You know, that's where the famous uh, George Washington letter uh, was sent in which um, Washington said that the government of the United States which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. That's, that was in 1790. 
Well, um, we've fallen from that. Um, we, we do give bigotry sanction uh, now in the highest places. Isn't that awful that uh, George Washington said in 1790 uh, that it should never have, that, it, that this government does not do that, and, and yet um, uh, here we are in uh, 2018 about to uh, turn into 2019, and the situation has changed. So We continue to impoverish ourselves by treating others as other. Every economic analysis indicates that immigrants are net contributors to the American economy. And so by becoming inhospitable to immigrants, we impoverish America. Look at what happened in Mississippi this week and in the weeks leading up to it. You had a candidate for United, well, a United States senator um, who was running for, re, for a re-election use even if it was a gaffe, then she doesn't apologize. In other words, she makes a political calculation that appeals to racism will ultimately help her to win election. There was an opportunity for Mississippi, it seems to me, to, to say to the nation, we are open to everyone's business. We reject racism. So, and Mississippi further impoverishes itself. I would say the same about Arkansas's failure to be congenial to, to gay and lesbian and transgender folks. We're talking about people who contribute to our community and our society. So any time that a group, whether it's Jews or anybody else, is made to feel unwelcome in a place, that impoverishes the society. I do feel very grateful to all those folks who turned out that night at that memorial service that we had because it was a statement that we are loved here. You know, I, it would be remiss on my part not to say that when Leslie and I do the two Jewish guys, we are so warmly welcome. Um, when we've done it at the Clinton Center, the place is full, over 200 people. We're greeted always uh, when we're out someplace. Are you one of the two Jewish guys? Or, it, it wouldn't have happened when I came here, but this is a different community. And uh, it, uh, I don't know that uh, in any other community we would be as welcomed uh, as we have been. Mm -hmm. We're grateful for it, I must say. Hannah? I think that's what can be so confusing about the modern Jewish experience in America is that it it is so polarizing to have a personal experience that's so welcoming and then turn on the news and see a climate that tells you the exact opposite. And so knowing whether to have your, your guard up or down is confusing and alienating and all comes down to the harmfulness of treating groups like a monolithic whole of scapegoating. And I think a, a, big, a big player in that is that a lot of people who perpetuate hatred feel that way about groups who they don't know individuals that are a part of it. You know, I think that was a big... The uh, us and them. Uh-huh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. the, the fear of otherness, the insistence that a national identity has to look one way. And I think the CNN report about anti-Semitism did a wonderful job at portraying that, which is that after these interviews were conducted, individuals were asked, 
well, do you know Jews personally? Do you have any Jewish friends? And those same people who had said those things said, oh, no, I've never socialized with a Jew. <laughs> yeah. and, and, or like, you know, now that I think about it, I haven't met anybody that is. And so <laughs> that seems to be the antidote is to have personal individual relationships rather than talking about an identity as all one thing and all one alien thing. There was one comment that I wanted to respond about um, anti-Semitism from the far left and talking about how that comes into play with Israel. And I think that's that not all rhetoric that criticizes Israel is anti-Semitic. And I think it can be a misdiagnosis in some occasions and definitely stifling to, to assume that all criticism and critique of and... Um, unconditional support of, of Israel is, is anti-Semitic. I, I, I think that that gets kind of dangerous, but it's very easy to see how um, on the internet and particularly in cartoons, how, how that rhetoric can go that way, but definitely a case-by-case basis. I agree with that completely. The, o- the only other thing I would say is that it's always difficult to have diversity on a panel. And when there's especially only three of us, right? And there's a lot of things that are different about our experiences, the three of us. One thing that's the same about the three of us is that all three of us grew up Jewish. All three of us have two Jewish parents or had two Jewish parents. And many members of our Jewish community in in North America are Jews by choice. In other words, people who chose Judaism as adults or people of various um, different ethnicities who converted to Judaism or have, are the children of one Jewish parent and one non-Jewish parent and maybe a people of color. And I, I want to be sure that folks know that there are many members of our Jewish community who face more than one of the kinds of othering um, hatreds and discriminations that we're talking about, either because they're people of color or because they're uh, gay and lesbian or transgender or, 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 or whatever else it is, um, and also just how affirming it is that there are people, even in 2018 with the rise of anti-Semitism that we have, who are choosing to cast their lot with this people. It upsets me all the time uh, to encounter this terrible anti-immigrant feeling. My parents were immigrants. My grandparents, all of them, were immigrants. They came here, My, uh, both my paternal and maternal grandfathers came before the First World War, and their families couldn't come be, uh, follow them until after the war uh, because of the situation in Europe. And I grew up in an immigrant, essentially an immigrant community where Many of uh, my contemporaries in Hebrew school and those who went to Greek school and those who were part of the Polish community or the Italian community were people who were immigrants and contributed greatly to what makes America. It's just beyond my comprehension that we now say we're closing off the opportunity to be great again by being an immigrant society. Right. One last question I want to give to all three of you. This being a generational-type format, if we can jump ahead to when you're in the older generation, and there are two other people here who have, who have come into life, where will we see anti-Semitism then? Where do you, do you think we're going to be any different then 
in 40, 60 years than we are now. So I think that's the biggest difference between the time that I grew up and now, is that a kid raised in the 70s was raised to believe that everything was getting better and would continue to get better in uh, one direction upwards and more progressive and more inclusive and more positive and more loving. And um, we don't live with that hope anymore. I'm not saying we don't pray for it. We do. But an expectation uh, or, or even feeling like we can predict what direction it's going to go, because I would guess Phil would say he, he would remember, I might remember a time when the idea that a black person could be president would be unthinkable. But I would say it's more unthinkable that we would have, if you would have told me when I was, when I, when I was Hannah's age that we could have a president who would be outwardly sympathetic to white supremacist groups, I wouldn't have believed you at all. So I don't know what direction things are going to go in in the future. Phil, where do you think we're heading? Well, I mean, I've come through uh, in my uh, 80 years um, transitions, as I said, where our son is now in a position that I could never have dreamed of, uh, where our grandchildren uh, are... Uh, successful, one's an accountant, one's a, in the Peace Corps, and another is still in college, but none of the three of them seem to suffer. But as uh, Rabbi Block has said, there's just too much abroad. There's just too much um, of this uh, terrible negative part to this culture um, I can only hope that that will change. Um, when Hannah gets to be uh, Rabbi Block's age, or hopefully gets to be my age, I can't say that I think the world is going to have changed or that this country will have changed. I can't say that. Okay, Hannah, what do you think? Despite the need for this segment today, <laughs> I don't feel... I don't feel very pessimistic about what my kids and grandkids will experience, I hope. I think a big difference to take into consideration is that there won't be Holocaust survivors alive anymore at that time. It's true. That's that's a biggie. I had a Holocaust survivor in my family. I had different Holocaust survivors in the community come and speak to us each year on Holocaust Memorial Day. And that was, an, uh, that was a live experience, uh, a live testimony, eyewitness account. And I think that is something that's going to be really different as we move forward with Holocaust education without them in the coming decades. But that, again, does not just become a fear about forgetting outside of the Jewish community, but also within. You know, that's also a big focus on thinking forward to future generations and hoping that they will still remember and that they will still care within the Jewish community um, and that those descendants will still be Jewish proudly, um, mm-hmm. carry that identity mm-hmm. with with a love for it, uh, a sense of importance about it, knowing what it means. Phil, thanks for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And Rabbi uh, Block, same thanks for being here. Thank you. And Hannah, thank you so much too.
Thank you for doing the segment. This has been a great opportunity for us to hear how anti-Semitism is felt and experienced across the generations. This is not an insignificant issue to all of us, both Jews and non-Jews. And I do sincerely hope you've gained a fresh insight into its effect on our society and humanity in general. And I do want to thank my guests, Phil Kaplan, Hannah Lieberman, and Rabbi Barry Block. I also want to thank Mary Ann Tettelbaum, the director of the Jewish Federation of Arkansas, for her help in finding these great guests. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow is produced for KUAR in partnership with the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. You can find us online and send your comments to ytt at kuar.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.